Hello, and welcome to Money Covered, a monthly podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints, claims, and risk management in the financial services sector. I'm Ash Daniels, one of the co-hosts on this podcast, and I'll be talking to our guests about topical issues relevant to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA-regulated entities, such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs and brokers, as well as TPR-regulated entities, including pension trustees and issues for offshore professionals and accountants. Welcome to Karina McFadden and Rebecca Bayliss as guests on the podcast today. In a month when the easing of restrictions were delayed, a mini heatwave swept the nation, and as we record on the 25th of June at least, England fans are chanting it's coming home. It's also been a very busy month in the financial services sector. Karina and Rebecca will discuss their top picks this month, but with a particular focus on issues relating to accountants. Firstly, it's worth covering other developments in June. The FCA has confirmed plans to scrutinise firms applying for defined benefit transfer permissions. In particular, the FCA will consider a firm's past conduct and involvement in pension transfer advice before deciding whether to approve permission. The SRA will be launching a consultation to consider implementing a limit on fee charges relating to financial mis-selling scandals. An FCA survey has revealed that over 2 million adults now hold crypto asset investments. Rather concerningly, 88% of those surveyed were unaware that such investments are not protected, whilst 14% confirmed they borrowed money to fund the investment. Auditors will be expected to do more to identify and assess fraud in financial statements following a shakeup of the UK auditing and governance rules. The Financial Reporting Council issued the revised standard in May, and this will cover audits beginning on or after the 15th of December 2021. The Financial Reporting Council's CEO, Sir John Thompson, has also revealed new proposals which would involve greater responsibility for directors, auditors and shareholders. And finally, contract-based pension schemes will be required to report on climate risk in their investment portfolios, mirroring their trust-based counterparts. The FCA has launched a consultation on extending the climate reporting rules to insurance-based defined contribution schemes, including both workplace and non-workplace pensions. Karina, welcome to Money Covered. So you're going to be talking us through the Supreme Court judgment in Manchester Building Society and Grant Thornton. But in a sentence or two, why is this case so important? So this is a landmark judgment that was handed down by the Supreme Court on the 18th of June that relates to the scope of duty that accountants, so in this particular case, auditors owe to their clients. However, the decision applies to all professional negligence claims, so it has a much wider significance. The judgment concerns the application of the concept of a professional scope of duty in the tort of negligence, as laid down in the case of South Australia Asset Management Corporation and York Montague Limited, that's usually referred to as SAMCO. The Manchester Building Society case is one of two appeals heard by the same panel of justices in the Supreme Court, examining the application of SAMCO in different fields, the other case being that of Kahn and Meadows. So it's effectively about how to assess a professional scope of duty, and from that, which losses flow from any such breach of duty. You mentioned there the SAMCO cap. Could you just talk listeners through what that is, please? So SAMCO concerned claims by mortgage lenders against valuers following the negligent valuation of property. So in essence, SAMCO established that a valuer's liability for providing a negligent valuation is limited to the consequences of that valuation being wrong. 
So the valuer should not be held liable for all losses suffered by the lender if the borrower subsequently defaults and the lender repossesses the property. So that's even if the lender could establish that it would not advance the money if the valuation had been accurate. In the Samco case, therefore, the House of Lords made a distinction between advice cases. So those are cases where advisors owe a duty of care to a client to advise on the entire decision-making process of renting into a transaction. And information cases. So those are cases where advisors merely provide information which form part of the material that a client will take into account when deciding whether or not to enter into a particular transaction. In advice cases, the advisor might be liable for all losses associated when entering into a transaction if they provided negligent advice. So what that meant in practical terms was that a lender could not recover more than the amount by which the valuer overvalued the property, and that's often referred to as the Samco cap. Losses attributable to other factors, such as a fall in the property market, would not be the responsibility of the valuer and should be excluded. The difficulty, however, has been applying these legal principles outside of valuer cases. Thanks, Karina. So what were the underlying facts in Manchester Building Society in Grant Thornton? And could you just tell us what happened at the High Court and Court of Appeal level? So the facts of the case are actually pretty complicated. So I'm going to keep them quite brief and just give you a summary of the key facts and issues without going into detail of hedge accounting practices. So Manchester Building Society issued fixed interest lifetime mortgages which meant that the loans and interest only became repayable when the borrower entered into a care home or died. The Building Society entered into long-term interest rate swaps to hedge its risks of a difference between the fixed rate of interest received from borrowers and the variable rate upon which the Building Society borrowed money to make the loans to the borrowers. In 2005, a change in accounting standards was introduced, which meant that swaps had to be recorded on the Building Society's balance sheet. This led to a high volatility on the balance sheet due to the changes in the variable rates. Then, later in 2006, the Building Society's auditors advised that a practice known as hedge accounting could be applied to offset the fair value of the swaps on the balance sheet. The Building Society relied on this advice and they purchased further swaps and they made more loans, thereby reducing the balance sheet volatility. In 2008, the financial crisis caused interest rates to fall and the swaps became a liability. Then in 2013, the Building Society found out that they could not in fact use the hedging account practices that their auditors had advised on. The result was that the volatility in the balance sheet returned as the full losses on the swaps had to be recorded and were no longer offset. Once the auditor's error had been identified, the necessary revisions to the accounts had to be made which meant that they no longer held sufficient regulatory capital and they had to break the swaps at their then fair value, suffering a loss of £32.7 million. The Building Society claimed that their auditors were responsible for these losses, as caused by breaking the swaps, as they claimed that they flowed from the negligent advice to apply hedge accounting. So when this came to court, the trial judge in the High Court held that the claimant was not entitled to damages in relation to the costs of closing the swaps in 2013. Although the Building Society's decision to close the swaps had been caused both as a matter of fact and in law by its auditors' negligent advice, the auditors had not assumed responsibility for such losses and they were therefore not recoverable as damages. However, the trial judge did find that the auditors were liable for other heads of loss, such as the termination of penalty costs of breaking the swaps. 
So the auditors were only held liable for around £300,000 of the transaction costs caused by breaking the swaps. In addition, the trial judge determined that if he had awarded the greater loss suffered by the building society in breaking the swaps, then he would reduce that loss by 50% on account of the building society being contributorily negligent. In particular, the judge found that the building society itself had been negligent in failing to realise that its hedge accounting policy didn't allow for substitution and didn't reflect the building society's intention to hedge using 50-year swaps, which would last much longer than the initial mortgages. So when it came to the Court of Appeal, they actually dismissed the Building Society's appeal and gave some additional guidance on how to differentiate between an advice and an information case when applying SAMCO. The Court of Appeal found that the approach the trial judge had taken was not the correct approach in law, but the correct overall decision was reached, and so the appeal was dismissed. Thanks, Karina. As you say, a very complex set of facts, so I'm sure our listeners are grateful for a slightly more high-level overview. The key question, therefore, before the Supreme Court was whether the losses flowed from any breach from Grant Thornton, looking at what Grant Thornton's scope of duty was. How did the Supreme Court approach that issue? So as I've already mentioned, the scope of duty principle is that a defendant is only liable for losses which fall within their scope of duty of care to the claimant. So in the place of scope of duty principle, within a general conceptual framework of the law of negligence, was explained in a bit more detail by the Supreme Court in the Link case of Kahn and Meadows. So that case was a wrongful birth clinical negligence claim in which the patient, Miss Meadows, went to see her GP to establish whether she was the carrier of the haemophilia gene. Her GP gave her a blood test to determine whether she personally had haemophilia, but the doctor failed to point out to her that her status as a carrier for the haemophilia gene remained undetermined by the results of the blood test. So Miss Meadows, she went on to have a son who was born with haemophilia and upon genetic testing, it became clear that she was a carrier of the gene. And it was accepted that she would have undergone fetal testing had she known she was a carrier and upon receiving the results and would not have proceeded with the pregnancy. Miss Meadows' son was later diagnosed as suffering from autism, but that was not linked to the haemophilia. The question in that claim, therefore, was whether the doctor was liable to compensate for the extra costs of haemophilia alone or also the costs of associated with the autism. So in Kahn and Meadows, the Supreme Court suggested that judges and practitioners should ask themselves the following six questions in any negligence claim. Firstly, the actionability question. So is the harm, so the loss, injury or damage, which is the subject matter of the claim, actionable in negligence? You then move to the second question, the scope of duty question. What are the risks of harm to the claimant against which the law imposes on the defendant a duty to take care? Third question, the breach question. Did the defendant breach their duty of care by their act or omission? You then move to the fourth question, which is the factual causation question. Is the loss for which the claimant seeks damages the consequence of the defendant's act or omission? Fifth question is then the duty of nexus question, which is quite important. Is there a sufficient nexus between a particular element of the harm for which the claimant seeks damages and the subject matter of the defendant's duty of care as analysed at the second stage? And then finally, the sixth question, and that's the legal responsibility question. Is a particular element of the harm for which the claimant seeks damages irrecoverable because it is too remote or because there is a different effective cause, such as a new or intervening act, in relation to it, or because the claimant has mitigated their loss or has failed to avoid loss, which they could reasonably have been expected to avoid. So the test now has these six component parts. 
How were they applied in the Grant Thornton case? So the Supreme Court unanimously allowed the Building Society's appeal. And the second question in the six questions test that they set out, that's the scope of duty question, was central to them reaching that decision, with this court stating that professional scope of duty needs to be considered within the general conceptual framework in the law of the tort of negligence. So the majority in the Supreme Court held that the correct approach was to identify the purpose to be served by the duty of care assumed by the defendant, and then to ask whether there is a sufficient nexus between the claimant's loss and the purpose of that duty. So the Supreme Court also criticised the distinction between advice and information, as set out in SAMCO, and said that it should not be treated as a rigid rule or a straitjacket, and the focus should be on identifying the purpose of the duty of care assumed by the defendant. The SAMCO counterfactual, which, which asks in an information case whether the claimant's actions would have resulted in the same loss if the action given by the defendant had been correct, was a useful cross-check, but importantly, it should not replace the decision which must be made as to the scope of the duty of care. So the Supreme Court held that the purpose of the auditors was to permit the building society to decide whether to use its hedge accounting in order to offer its lifetime mortgage product within the constraints of the regulatory environment in which it operated. With that in mind, the Supreme Court found that the trial judge was entitled to conclude both that the auditor's negligence was an effective cause of the loss and that the society's mismatching of mortgages and swaps in an overly ambitious application of the business model amounted to contributory negligence. As a result, the damages claimed by the business society for the cost of closing the swaps were within the scopes of the auditor's duty but were also subject to a reduction in damages of 50% for contributory negligence, which had not been appealed. Looking at the other Supreme Court case, in Carnham Meadows, the doctor had been asked to give advice on whether Miss Meadows was a carrier of the haemophilia gene and was therefore responsible for the part of Miss Meadows' loss, as was related to the breach of duty in admitting to give the right advice. As such, the Supreme Court held in that case that the doctor was not liable for the costs associated with the child's autism. Thanks, Karina. So the Grant Thornton case is obviously important in a wider scope, but where do you think it leaves audit negligent cases? So this case clearly demonstrates that professional advisors, including auditors, are under growing scrutiny. And it's likely that claimants will use this judgment as justification for trying to recover a greater scope of losses than perhaps they would have done before. So the Court of Appeal did last year set out its views in another auditor claim, and that was Asico and Grant Thornton, that the SAMCO cap should not be applied as a rigid rule. The principal purpose of an audit is to enable a company by its shareholders or non-executive directors to call senior management to account and correct errors. So in the facts of that case, the audit ought to have uncovered that the business was only ostensibly sustainable because of the dishonest representations and unreasonable decisions of management, which the auditors should have uncovered and reported. It was that specific breach which allowed Asico to continue trading and pump money into its subsidiaries which was the cause of the bulk of the loss. Therefore, the Court of Appeal held that this was within the scope of the duty of care. So professionals giving advice should take note of the purpose of duty question and make sure that their terms of engagement are absolutely clear on the agreed purpose of the advice being sought. So since the SAMCO judgment was handed down by the House of Lords in 1996, its principles have been applied in a range of different situations involving a range of different professionals operating in all different types of fields. In the same way, it'll be interesting to see how the lower courts will look to apply this entirely new negligence formula 
and how the precise scope of an auditor's duty will be formulated in light of the purpose of an audit as objectively assessed. Thanks very much uh, for taking through what is undoubtedly a very complex but very important decision, Karina. So, Rebecca, you're picking up another topic in the accountants area today, and that's compulsory professional indemnity insurance for tax advisors. So could you just tell listeners what this is about, please? Yes, of course. So you may recall in September 2019 that the government asked the former Auditor General, Sir Amos Morse, to lead an independent review into the loan charge. So the loan charge was announced at budget in 2016, and it essentially sought to tackle disguised remuneration tax avoidance schemes, where income was paid in the form of loans and not therefore taxed or subject to national insurance contributions. So the loan charge, in effect, would retrospectively charge income tax and national insurance contributions on the full value of a loan paid through loan schemes operating between April 1999 to April 2019. So in 2019, Sir Morse was asked to conduct an independent review into the loan charge policy and its implementation. Sir Morse presented his conclusions in December 2019 and made 20 recommendations for change. So these included that the government look at ways to improve the standards in the tax advice market, as it was found that the market was not working as well as it should be. So following this, at spring budget 2020, the government published a call for evidence, which, among other things, asked for views on possible approaches to raising standards. The outcomes included market transparency and enhanced tax compliance. So following this, and which brings me to our topic today, the government published its next step, which announced a package of actions in order to achieve the outcomes from the call for evidence, including introducing a requirement for all tax advisors to hold professional indemnity insurance and a definition of tax advice. So as you're aware, professional indemnity insurance is mandatory for many regulated professions, such as solicitors and financial advisors. It is not currently, however, mandatory for tax advisors to hold professional indemnity insurance. So this consultation on the government's proposals was published on the 23rd of March 2021, and responses closed on the 15th of June of this year. Thanks, Rebecca. So you spoke a little bit there about what the consultation would cover, but could you just go into a little bit more detail about that for us? Yes, of course. So the goal of the consultation was to seek views on the government's proposals to introduce a requirement for tax advisors to hold professional indemnity insurance, including minimum levels of cover and how the policy could be enforced and implemented. The ultimate goal, however, is to improve trust in the market by reducing poor advisor behaviour. There are various different issues for the government to consider. So these include, firstly, who must be insured. So most professional bodies require each member in practice to hold professional indemnity insurance. Options for the proposed mandatory requirement could include a similar requirement for each practicing tax advisor to hold separate insurance. The government must also look at the minimum level of cover and excess. So again, some professional bodies require a minimum level of cover and a set amount of excess. The government is, however, considering whether it should set a minimum level of cover as it recognises the risk that some professional bodies with a minimum requirement above any minimum levels the government sets may in turn reduce their required level to meet the government level. The government has also made clear that the right balance needs to be struck. If an excess is set, it must not be so high that it becomes unaffordable, but it must also not be so low that taxpayer protection is compromised. Exclusions must also be considered because for the new proposed requirement to benefit taxpayers, 
the consultation notes that tax advisors should not be able to take advantage of policies that exclude specific tax-related activities. In addition to this, the government must also look at runoff cover. So runoff cover is cover for claims made against a professional firm or advisor after they stop doing business. So professional bodies usually ask their members to hold runoff cover for between two and six years. The government proposes that the optimum level of runoff cover should be six years for tax advisors. So the final issue, and that's excluding the definition of tax advice, is enforcement. So the government is proposing an enforcement regime with three elements. These are transparency, checking advisors have insurance and sanctions for non-compliance. The government is of the view that these three elements combined would form a comprehensive enforcement approach that reinforces the government's policy intent of improving trust in the tax market by targeting behaviour. Thanks, Rebecca. So you alluded to it then, but it seems to me that one of the key points here is how you define tax advice. So the wider the definition, the more activities and therefore potentially individuals will be caught. Did the consultation say anything about this? Yes. So the government considers that the definition of tax advice should be drawn widely to cover the diverse range of activities that can include tax advice. So this is to prevent promoters of tax avoidance schemes from hiding behind a label of offering guidance rather than tax advice. So examples given in the consultation of activities and professionals who may be providing tax advice include, so a financial advisor who in the course of providing investment advice to a client advisors on the most tax efficient ways to invest, or a bookkeeper maintaining records of money coming in and out of a company and preparing end of year returns. The risk here, of course, is that the definition is so broad as to capture activities such as payroll processing services. The Institute of Chartered Accountants suggests that the definition of tax advice should be narrower than that which has been proposed by the HMRC, but with the power to add at a later date. It is clear that careful thought will need to be given to this moving forward. Well, interestingly, some of the tax advice caught may already relate to advisors, which is caught under the scope of other insurance. Have there been any proposals around those bases? Yes, you're right. So the consultation is perhaps slightly unclear on this point. It is thought, however, that the proposal should not, in theory, affect the roughly 70% of tax advisors who are members of professional bodies as they should already hold professional indemnity insurance as a requirement of their membership. It is, of course, important that there is no duplication of requirements which may place unnecessary burdens on these tax advisors. Thanks for outlining those proposals, Rebecca. Um, It's interesting to note that 70% already may have insurance, so it'll be interesting to see how they cope with this consultation. Could you just outline what you consider to be next following the consultation? Yes, so the consultation on the professional indemnity insurance and tax advice is part of a package of proposals put forward by the HMRC to address concerns regarding standards in the tax advice market. The purpose of the consultation here is to seek views on the detailed policy design and a framework for implementation of a specific proposal. The government will now consider the responses to the consultation before looking at implementation, which may be done gradually as the introduction of mandatory professional indemnity insurance for tax advisors would be a great change for many. Thanks to Karina and Rebecca for joining us today. Um, Lots of interesting issues have arisen in June uh, with some complex issues to be discussed. So thank you very much for taking us through those. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again next month when we'll be discussing the hot topics in the financial services sector. Please do click to subscribe. And be sure to check out our other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk 
forward slash perspectives. Finally, many thanks to today's guests, as well as everyone behind the scenes at RPC that make this podcast possible.